Good morning. As always, by the time you get through music and communion, we've already had a sermon, and then some, right? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for um, your word, how it informs our life, it shapes our minds, it shows us how to love one another, and how to be healthy and good stewards of what you've given us. And I just pray this morning that you would get me out of the way, and that uh, only all of us would see you through your word this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So today, as we press on in our 11-part series to learn from Scripture, what the model for the church is today, the way we think about the church and how God relates to us through his word, and ultimately our view of God and how he relates to his church This city of God that Pastor Sean has been referring to over these past several weeks determines how we do church. And while I don't like the term do church, our practices and points of emphasis as a church body reflects our hearts. We do things based on what we believe, based on what we know to be true from Scripture. Our focus on any given Sunday and all the activities that take place throughout any given week here at HBC reveals our attitudes about God and what dictates everything we are about. We can't have a man-centered or small God approach to how we function as members of God's family and expect our great God to change our hearts in any kind of spiritual capacity. And since we call ourselves a Bible church... What God says in his word is the source of what we do. At least it should be. We don't want a secular, worldly, business model approach and try to manipulate scripture to make it fit our model. We want to take scripture, see what God says to us through it, and build the model. So today, I was asked to share what the role of the elders and deacons are and how that pertains to a healthy, functioning body. And we'll also look into what the congregation's role is in that also. So let's look at the role of the elder first. Why are they even needed? Elders are needed for consistent order and maintenance of the health of the church. The church needs ongoing reformation. Not reformation in the sense of changing our approach to the word or how it is interpreted, but maintaining the correct and consistent application of the word to our changing times. It seems every week there's another morsel of false teaching trying to sneak in through the many outlets of social media or internet publications, but we try to be studious here in determining those things by refuting anything contrary to the word. This was Paul's charge to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, 
my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So multiple, order, old, multiple elders are biblical and necessary for growth and leadership. First of all, the two main references are names that refer to church leadership in the scriptures as elders and overseers. That word elders is the most commonly used word. This is a concept of a group of what we call the plurality of elders. The scriptures consistently maintain this pattern of referring to them as more than one. There isn't a case to be built for a single man, and I'm not talking about an unmarried man, but for a man to be overseeing everything, calling the shots for everyone, or overseeing many churches in an overarching denomination placed under him. This plurality of eldership is intended to share the workload. It cultivates various giftedness. It provides a broader scope of wisdom. There's accountability, and strengths and weaknesses are offset by one another as they work together. And there's a lot of encouragement through that. It is a shared leadership among like-minded men who are equal in their position and responsibility to oversee the church. And they are charged with rightly dividing the word of truth when they feed the body while they lead the body. And when it comes to, living, to governing together, for us here at Hayden Bible Church, sometimes it seems to take longer to arrive at decisions and conclusions because unless we are all unanimous on any given subject, we don't move on it. We stay put. So there's much prayer for wisdom in addition to a high level of trust that comes into play, peppered with a little bit of patience in there, to maintain our unity. So if we aren't all on the same page initially, more time is needed in order to work through some things. This is some of the wording from our own bylaws here at the church. It says, Elders are the church's spiritual leaders, ministers, and maintain oversight over all the ministries and everything that is done in the church. All elders, including vocational elders, are subject and accountable to the plurality of elders as a whole. As the church's spiritual leaders, the elders' interpretation of Scripture shall guide the church in matters of doctrine and practice. And Scripture doesn't provide a logistical cookie-cutter template for churches to adhere to. They have the freedom to customize it to their specific needs. And just because another church does it differently than the way we do it here, it doesn't make it wrong, and vice versa. But that freedom has to stay within the foundations that are laid out in Scripture. And that's our aim here. And we don't get everything right. We're very aware of that. We strive to with the help of the Lord, but we're thankful the Lord works through all things for his purposes in spite of our shortcomings. And if you've, ever, if you've been here for any length of time, you know HBC is an elder-led church. And in saying that, their leadership and oversight isn't done in an overpowering manner or lording over the flock. They aren't put into position to rule over people with a strong hand and force their own agenda. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But we want to be all about the agenda of the gospel here. 
The way to administer authority in the word can only be done under the authority in accordance with the instructions we've been given in God's word under the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the one thing that's been a blessing within our leadership here at Hayden Bible Church. It would be very difficult for any one person's agenda should they try to implement it for it to get any traction. Look at the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the leaders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there are many different approaches as to how churches and denominations are governed, but there is need for order, organization, and governing. Over the years, even at Hayden Bible Church, there have been many different approaches as to how it was governed. Because there were hard lessons learned, change was needed as Scripture has, was learned and applied. There's been a maturation process that happens even within a church as opposed to our personal lives. When this, when I, when this was a much smaller church, we always talk about the old building over there. You've heard us talk about that a lot. Many of us obviously were, used to worship together there. But I remember when I was a very young boy, not old enough to understand what was going on. I had no concept of church order. Being present for what it must have been a business meeting I was there for, I guess. I'm sure it was like a Sunday evening worship time, but it didn't turn out too worshipful. It actually seemed like uh, the equivalent of a gunfight at the OK Corral. <clears throat> it was between, between two groups of people in the congregation arguing over who knows what. But they were taking plenty of verbal shots at one another that resulted in a portion of the congregation leaving together in solidarity and protest against the pastor. It was a situation where there wasn't plurality of leaders or elders. It was a pastor attempting to oversee the flock all on his own, and he had some sheep turn on him. And I'm sure if we went around this room, many of you would have multiple stories of your own to share from past experiences in churches going through similar circumstances. But since you don't get to talk, I'm going to share another one. <laughs> My wife Leslie and I were part of a church back in the mid-80s to mid-90s. It wasn't here, a different church in the area. I won't say what it was. But it was a church that was governed by a national denomination with regional authority, which provided a guidance over the local church. And they had a congregational approach to how it was managed. Annual meetings complete with nominations for people to fill positions, elections for committees to find pastors. The members could vote for people with common agendas and ideas, including a board of deacons, that quite frankly made life pretty miserable for the pastor if he got on their bad side. So you get the picture of what eventually became of that. And this is when we started to pay close attention to how a church was to function, biblically, 
Because if that was the way it was supposed to go, we were ready to tap out. So if we want to know what the elders are and what, what they are and what they're to be done, how they're to be done operating, we have to go to the scriptures, correct? Yes. The scriptures have much to say about elders. Elders lead by example. They're faithful stewards to what they've been entrusted. And I know most everyone here is familiar with the passages in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 when defining the elders and their qualifications. But let's read through this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and we'll come back to that, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And the wording in Titus 1 is also very similar. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, first of all, an elder has to be a believer, right? Second of all, he has to be a male. The words he and husband are referred to without confusion. Elders are called to accurately teach and defend the scriptures. And the marching orders for elders is to be a group of men put in the care of a local body of believers. They shepherd the flock by feeding the sheep. The spiritual health of the church should be the focus of all the functions condoned by the leadership in a church. Growth with programs for the sake of growing numerically versus growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, it shouldn't even be a contest. If we get caught up in manufacturing ways to grow numerically outside the bounds of the gospel and the teaching of the word, we've missed the mark. If our numbers grow because of the teaching of the word, which I hear consistently from those of you moving into our area is the case, then praise be to God. So how do we here determine who the elders are and how are they chosen? Well, the way it has worked, and the way it has worked well here at HBC, is time. Time is the first thing that takes place. The existing leadership, through ministering with other men in the congregation over a long period of time, observes one who is already practicing as an elder, accurately handling the word and the defense of it in its entirety is paramount in their life. If someone has been in our midst and has the desire and ability to teach and pastor the flock, 
relating to the flock in a loving way, even without the title, it becomes evident. And attention is drawn amongst the leadership without much conversation or prompting, at least not from one another. We try to rely on the Holy Spirit's leading in these matters. Usually, if a name is brought up as a possible consideration, we've already been thinking about it at the same time in our own private thoughts. Because if we believe what we pray, the Holy Spirit will bring these things to mind. So I wanted to touch on the deacons here also. In contrast to the elders, honestly, the scriptures don't have a whole lot to say about the deacons, at least as to their instructions or their role. The Apostle Paul only tells us what their qualifications are and the need to make sure they are examined and vetted. They've proven themselves. But we find that doesn't mean their role is any less significant when it comes to ministering to the body. Most of the information we have of deacons are mentioned in only two letters in the New Testament. Once in the greeting to the church at Philippi, and the verses listing their qualifications found in the following verses in 1 Timothy 3, where we just read about the elders. 1 Timothy 3 says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be also tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There was an urgent need in the church in Ephesus where Paul instructed Timothy to remain to be brought back into line. The church had been permeated with false teachers to the point of two of their leaders had to be excommunicated. So he charged Timothy to lead the charge to determine who the false teachers were and develop leadership who could stand up to the false teaching. And if the model we find in Acts chapter 6, which was followed, which we will, we'll get to that in a minute, we can imagine that there were servant leaders also involved. Deacons are assistants to the elders, but not their servants. There is an order as to how the relationship between elders and deacons work. There is a subordinate role indicated just by the order in Scripture they are mentioned. It seems the best way to describe the role of a deacon after much intense research by scholars who are much wiser than I. If we just use, if we've, so if they arrived at the term assistant, and if we just use the term servant, that could apply to anyone who regularly serves in the church in any capacity. And while we know there are many in our congregation that serve selflessly, men and women, given the description of deacons in the Bible, we can't simply call everyone who serves a deacon. And there's a wide spectrum of jobs assigned to deacons in churches everywhere because there isn't a clear job description there are clear qualifications, but not the responsibilities. So deacons are appointed to do everything from taking care of the grounds at the church to serving the way they do here at Hayden Bible Church, all the way to providing oversight and management of the pastoral staff and finances. 
And one of the negatives of not having a concise job description for deacons is the title and responsibility of the person can be watered down. For instance, it could be assigned to someone who is good at making pancakes for men's breakfast. (laughs) So I guess we would call him the flapjack deacon. (laughs) But don't get me wrong. We need good pancakes pancakes at times, sometimes. But obviously, the role is more spiritual and serious focus. A positive to the lack of explanation of the responsibilities is it gives the freedom to assign gifted individuals an assortment of responsibilities while keeping in mind the parameters in the Bible has given for qualifications and not watering down the sincerity of the position. There's a passage that's been affiliated with deacons, although it isn't explained clearly. There's not like direct instructions or titles given in it, but in Acts chapter 6, we find... It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching of the word to serve tables. Not right to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The following verse in this passage mentions Stephen as the first one of the seven that they chose, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And if Stephen was the first deacon that was chosen, I think the bar was set pretty high. To be clear, the relationship between the elders and deacons can't be defined as a master-servant scenario, even though there might be some deacons in this room who have construed my interactions with them over the years to believe that. But I hope not, because that's not my heart. The scripture indicates that the job of the twelve couldn't be done without the assistance of the seven. And just as then, today... Our ever-increasing responsibilities as under-shepherds of God to this congregation couldn't happen without our team of deacons. Deacons aren't called to teach, but they are called to serve well. And looking back at the scripture we just read a bit ago regarding the qualifications for both offices of leadership, we recognize the elder-like qualifications for deacons have one exception. That is the ability to teach. This doesn't mean a deacon can't teach, but it isn't a condition expected of them. And so that's the distinction between the office of an elder and a deacon. Deacons are self-servant leaders to the flock. The way things are supposed to work here, each family in our congregation, in membership, should have a deacon assigned to you. And whether you've been here for many years or even just one, if you've committed to be a part of Hayden Bible Church, The goal is to have a deacon assigned to every family. And the intent intent for them is to pay attention to the physical needs of those in the body who aren't able to otherwise meet those needs on their own. Obviously, sometimes there are things needing to be done that are out of the scope of what our deacons are even equipped to do. But at the very least, we try to connect people with someone who can meet those needs. Last week, at one of the services I mentioned If you haven't heard from your deacon in a while, give them a call and maybe 
they'll maybe give them some encouragement. And if you don't have an a deacon yet, officially, you still have one. Well, you actually have more than one because you can get any of their phone numbers anytime from the church. It's probably on your bulletin there. But, um, well, you can pick your own deacon if you want. Just do that. If you don't have one. Maybe a relationship will be developed that way. But seriously, our deacons here, they have a heart of service and are willing to be of some encouragement to all of you. And as the membership roles continue to grow here, our goal is to keep up with leadership proportionate to the size of our congregation. But it is the same process for deacons and elders. It takes time. Now, I wanted to get to this next part because it provides us with a biblical model for an elder-led, deacon-supported ministry model. But what does that do for you? What difference does that make for any of us? The church is called to submit to its leaders. Well, that sounds shocking and a bit condescending. Why do full-grown adults and parents with children and grandchildren of their own need to be told to submit? None of us like to be told what to do. Submitting to leadership doesn't mean you just do what you are told. The relationship between the church and its leaders are intended for that. The relationship that God has designed for his church is an eagerness and an ability on the part of the shepherds to serve, to teach, and to preach while it provides security for the church. It's members placing themselves under the umbrella of their protection. In Hebrews 13, 17 and beyond, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And the only way this relationship can work effectively is if the congregation engages in the exercise. Now let's face it. Some of us choose not to be engaged. We want nothing to do with being under any authority or leadership in the church. We've been there, and we've done that, or we've been burned in the past. But some may be missing out on the blessing of growing in the faith and knowledge of Christ. But I can tell you that leadership here is eager to be a part of your lives. They're supposed to be doing it with joy, not with groaning, as it says. What good does it do to serve the body if they're not doing it with joy? It is of no use to you. It is of great encouragement to this leadership here when they have opportunity to be a part of your life. Don't shy away from being a part of the body life just because it seems you're too much of a problem or you're too busy or we're too busy. Don't shy away. The church is also called to expect adversity. And I'm not talking about the type of adversity when you break your shoelace trying to rush out the door to an important meeting or when your latte wasn't brought up to temperature the way you thought it should. And not only is, this church, is the church to expect adversity, the leaders even more are to expect it and they are to shepherd the flock through that adversity. Look at the verses here from Acts 20, starting in verse 17. 
It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am, coming to, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Even though Paul knew ahead of time something was going to happen to him when he journeyed on to Jerusalem, his words, I don't know what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And death was in the back of his mind he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And because leadership will have adversity, the church will have it as well. The Apostle Paul wasn't too familiar with the American prosperity gospel, was he? I mean, he is familiar with people peddling the gospel for profit, but he couldn't put up with it. He wouldn't be taken in by it. Even though this passage and many other passages throughout the epistles are directly, directly aimed for the ears and hearts of the elders, the overall intended obvious, audience is obviously the church. Whether it was Peter or Paul, in any of these letters, the concern for the spiritual well-being for the flock on the part of Paul, for, for the church as he planted and cultivated, isn't of little priority. Even though he gave a passionate warning to those elders, they couldn't hold the line. Eventually, as I mentioned before, the church was decimated with false teachers, causing much damage and confusion to the flock. And the fierce wolves that he warned about were going to come from within the fold. 
the leadership themselves. And the fierce wolves Paul warned of then are the same wolves we need to be watching for today. There are so many more inlets that creep into our midst today than back then. And we quite honestly swing the doors wide open for them if we aren't paying attention. And how do we swing the doors wide open for those wolves? It happens by departure from the truth. There are many forms of adversity, but the damage begins when the leadership of any church strays away from the church truth and the sheep follow. And if you were ever to have a question about the teaching here at HBC, if you sensed a departure from the truth, a sliding down of some slippery slope, we invite you to first go to the scriptures. And if you were to find some counter-scripture teaching taking place, let's talk about it. Now, if you simply wanted to pick apart a person's personality and cut them to ribbons with your words, that's probably not what we're talking about. But there is room for discussion in matters of doctrine and ungodly conduct when it involves the leadership. If the elders in Scripture needed warning of such things back then, then we need to heed those warnings today. Because we know it happens often. We see leaders in churches fall all the time. 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And Pastor Sean spoke to church discipline last week, so we don't need to go back into the details of that. But leadership is subject to discipline as well as the church. They aren't above it. But it has to be approached cautiously and respectfully. The church should expect teaching straight from God's word without apology. The whole counsel of the word, verse by verse, not skipping over those passages that make us squirm and make us a little uncomfortable. And if you don't view Scripture as an authority in your life, if you're of the mindset that it can't all be true, what's true for you may not be true for me, yet you want all the benefits of salvation and happiness and blessings from God, none of what I'm about to say is going to apply. I've heard the question before, why are you guys so hung up on doctrine? While that might, that might sound like a not-so-smart thing to say, it's a good question. And we just looked at the phrases Paul used to stress the importance of sound doctrine. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. How I, I taught you in public and from house to house. He testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, he could say, I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, we aren't ever all going to agree on everything in the scriptures because we're still only getting to see through that glass dimly. But we don't shy away from the essentials that are plainly addressed in scripture. We have room to disagree and speculate on things not plainly explained, 
But even that speculation must be done without breaking the window of heresy. And we have to be able at times to just say, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us all things. We don't have to have an answer for everything if it doesn't tell us. The church should also know the heart of their leadership. Can we just be realistic for a moment? What good is it to share doctrine with a mother of four who just learned she's stricken with inoperable cancer and, or late-stage cancer because she can't? it's not going to help? What good is it to share doctrine with the person who works 60 hours a week and is on the road all the time? They've invested many hours and resources into training new employees just to relieve some of the pressure. And then they quit the week after they're trained and leaves the boss in a lurch. Just spewing facts at someone in such circumstances is of no help. There must be truth behind the message. There must be a heart behind the message. There must be a message that's backed with love. In Paul's longing for the elders and the church, we find his heart behind the message. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. The point of imputing scripture where doctrine resides into the lives of those under the care of the church, into somebody's life that's going through the deep stuff, that's what should be the foundation of every believer's life and is of much good. It informs every facet of life. A renewed mind is the result of solid doctrine. So how is the church to allow the leadership to lead? The church is called to follow their leaders without questioning them. I'm just seeing if you're awake. No, the church is called to allow the leadership to lead if it is biblical. 2 Timothy 2 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And by following the example and instructions under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, there is great potential for true unity and growth among believers. It isn't a pipe dream to see that happen. Patiently enduring evil, as I just mentioned in that scripture, does this mean we're supposed to put up with it? That's not what that means. It must be extracted immediately, whether it is in your home or in the church. But we have to understand, evil isn't going away anytime soon. It may subside in your home for a bit, but then it crops up at work. And when both of those places seem to be going well, you may find yourself in a wee bit of a conflict with someone at, of all places, the church. Folks, this is a marathon 
Our God never sleeps and he never slumbers. And I don't want to imply that the enemy even has remotely any of God's attributes, but he tries to imitate them. And we can't deny he's ambitious. He sets traps for us. I have to be honest. It's very intimidating on the part of our leadership here at Hayden Bible Church to see things in Scripture, to read phrases that say things like, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Shepherd the flock. Be examples to the flock. These are things Paul and Peter could say. And these are things you should be able to say about your leadership. That's a tall order. And that's a scary thing. Can I tell you something? Thank you. (laughs) I believe that's the heart of the leadership here at Hayden Bible Church. And I'm not saying that in a prideful way. Do we say things sometimes that seem insensitive? Yes. Do we forget sometimes to call you back or answer your emails in a timely fashion? Yes. Is it easy to fall into the trap of getting all worked up inside? You find yourself having a conversation with yourself and you've arrived at the conclusion you've been tossed aside because you haven't heard from one of the pastors in a long time. Yes. How do I know these things? Because I've done it too. Should you hold your leadership to a higher standard? Yes. As weird as that may sound, leadership should want to be held to a higher standard. Not only is the leadership going to be held to a higher standard because they're keeping watch over the souls of the church, but it is sobering to think the church is to follow their example. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. I don't know what to say to that. But I can say it brings much joy to our hearts when we see evidence of the fruit of our labor, when we see brothers and sisters in our midst who are living out what they've been taught, maturing through what seems like ever-increasing adversity, seeing the sanctification of the saints, because of the heart of stone within them that has been turned to flesh. That's the sign of a healthy body of believers. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word and the instructions that we find therein. We do thank you for sanctification Thank you that we don't have to have all the answers all at the same time, but that you know us, you know us better than we know ourselves. So I just pray that as we go on from here today, that we will remember these things, that we will be eager 
to engage with those around us and to follow the model that you've set before us in your word. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.